Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter that we celebrate together as the church this weekend. We will continue our six-week journey of Easter through the book of Acts with Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. We also remain in the book of Revelation for our epistle readings. Today it'll be Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. And for the gospel reading, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Now there are some churches that will recognize this weekend as Good Shepherd Sunday. And that comes off of the gospel reading, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's begin by looking at the first reading from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. As I noted before, we're on a, I can't even call it a journey through Acts because we cover Acts for six weeks, but we do chapter 5, 9, 20, 11, 16, and then 1. So we're not going straight through the book. We're kind of bouncing all over the place with texts that perhaps are fitting to the themes for each given week. So as we look at Acts chapter 20, we have basically Paul's encouragement to the pastors of the church in Ephesus is what we'll be looking at today. And if I were forced to pick a theme, I'm going to go with the end of the gospel reading, John chapter 10, where Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's going to be this idea that as the church, as the bride of Christ, we get to be with Christ in his paradise forevermore where he will care for us. So that's the... That's the thread to kind of pull through all three readings. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 20, we really need to zoom out just a little bit first. This is Paul's third missionary journey, and he is just going to cover Acts chapter 18, verse 23, through chapter 21, verse 16, which puts him back into the city of Jerusalem. If you're following along on that journey, he's going to start in Antioch. He's going to have gone already to through Galatia and Phrygia, up into Western Asia by the Aegean Sea, where he visits the city of Ephesus, and he stays there for a long time. Then he goes up into Macedonia, and then down to the left, off to Greece, and then he doubles back, and he goes through Macedonia again, then to Troas, Asos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and then finally, as we get to our text, we find him in Miletus. So that's where we're going to pick up verses 17 and 18, introduce his speech, and then we'll cover the speech. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, so we're going to pause right there, right away. So the rest of this section for us for the weekend is all one paragraph. It's all Paul's speech. Now, Miletus is about 20 miles south of the city of Ephesus or so. Not a terrible journey. You could walk that in a day. And so what we see here is Paul, again, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, and he's summoning the elders of the church, or as he will call them in the speech itself, the overseers of the church. He summons them to himself rather than going to them. Now, elder, overseer, again, both of those words showing up here and seemingly interchangeably. The New Testament does this, whether it's in Paul's writing to Timothy or to Titus as he's describing the qualifications for those who would lead the church. Elder, overseer, deacon, there's these different terms. And it's hard to really, for us in the 21st century, look back and and see if there's actually a distinction between them. Again, he uses elder and overseer of the same people here in this particular passage. And so typically we just look at these things and make them synonymous to the idea of what we call pastors in our church, which is a word you don't see in Scripture, but that instead comes from the Latin language, the word for a shepherd see the connection of the gospel reading there coming up in a little bit. Anyway, so Paul has not gone to Ephesus, but he calls the elders, the pastors, to come to him instead down in Miletus. They have to make that journey. Why not go directly to them? It's an idea of haste. 
Paul, well, hang on just a second. Have you ever had one of those conversations with somebody that you were, you know, you were just going to say hi and it turns into like a 45-minute conversation? Paul is concerned in a sense that his visit to Ephesus would have been like that. This was actually in our text just before our reading picks up. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul wants to get to Jerusalem in time to celebrate one of the feasts of the church and he's concerned if he stops in Ephesus, it's going to delay his journey for too long and he won't be able to make it back in time. So, nothing to do with the riot that occurred there uh, and, and drove him out some time before. That was chapter 19. So, this brings us then to what he has to say. He's been with these, these pastors for multiple years. Chapter 19, verse 8 through 10 alone suggests two years and three months, but Paul himself in the, the speech will suggest three years that he was with that church. So, let's go ahead and take in the speech and then unpack it. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the only time in the book that we have Paul giving an address to the Christian church. Now, we have his letters, his epistles in the New Testament in which he does that, but typically his speeches in the book of Acts are directed at people who aren't Christians as it's recording his missionary journeys. But now, this is a church that he's already planted, and he is speaking to their pastors. He's giving them words to exhort them as they continue on in their work, even though they will not have him with them any longer. So he begins this speech, verse 18b, saying that they have basically witnessed everything. They have watched him work. A couple of times in his epistles, he will tell us to follow his example, as he follows the example of Christ, one of the ways he says that. They have witnessed this for, again, three years, roughly, that they have watched him come into Asia. They have watched him serve the Lord. They have seen what that looks like. And what did it look like? Humility, tears, and trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Now, there's a lot that the Jews plot against him, and and literally they plot against him. 
They make plots to have him killed and so forth. But they stoned him. They beat him. They lied about him. They would chase him out of a town. After he left one town, they would come in behind him and they would seek to undo all the work that he had done by convincing these new Christians and this this new congregation that they had to follow all the Jewish Old Testament laws if they wanted to be a true church. These sorts of things are are the trials that he, he grappled with. And the tears, whether from pain, and as he endures some of the, the physical hardship there, or from the pain of a father as he watches his spiritual children, the churches that he has planted, be deceived, led astray. But he has done this with humility. He's gone in among them, not claiming to be someone great, although he could boast among the Jews, but instead as one who sought to serve. As Jesus said, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul declares here in verse 20 that he did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Now that reminds me of his declaration in 1 Corinthians right at the beginning of the letter as he says that he desires to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what exactly is profitable? He doesn't expound on that here in this particular speech, but it would be all of God's word which points us to Christ. As he then goes on teaching, both in public, so Paul doesn't mind being out in the open and teaching, although that could have gotten him in trouble, and sometimes, oftentimes, it did. But he also taught them from house to house. So he was going to whosoever home would have that hospitality. We might think of the early missionary journeys of the disciples go on. As Jesus sends out the twelve, he sends out the seventy or the seventy-two, and he tells them that wherever there was hospitality, if someone would welcome them into the home, they should stay in that home, but otherwise shake the dust from their feet and, and leave that town. So Paul, similar here, has given out the good news of Jesus Christ, Old Testament and New Testament alike, what they have, at least what they know. By this point of Acts chapter 20, the third missionary journey, it's likely Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels have been written down. The letter to the Galatian church has been written just as a few examples. Some of the New Testament definitely still to come. Anything written by John doesn't come until closer to 90 AD, which is a good four decades away. He's testified to the Jews and to the Greeks, both of them. It didn't matter. He testified to both of them alike, repentance toward God and faith in Christ. Interestingly, both of these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is only the Holy Spirit that works repentance in the Christian. We can't repent on our own doing. We would rather stick with our sin. But the Spirit does that good work in us. And also the idea of faith. We cannot come to faith. I cannot by my own reason or strength trust in Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit enlightens me and calls me by his gospel. Might sound familiar to the descriptions in Luther's small catechism. The, the picture here is that the Spirit creates faith in the heart of a person. And then the Spirit continues to dwell in that person and regularly, ongoingly brings them to repent before the Lord, acknowledging their sins and trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness and salvation. So these two gifts are wondrous things. But again, the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit points us to Christ. Christ brings us back to the Father. So Paul, not withholding this from anyone, Paul sharing this gift both to the Jew and to the Gentile, or the Greek as it's phrased here. Now he's returning to Jerusalem, which we noted before from the previous verse. He's trying to get there before Pentecost, one of the major celebrations uh, where they gathered to Jerusalem each year. But he's Constrained by the Spirit is what he said. So he must go. The Spirit is driving him there. Not knowing what will happen to me there. So Paul goes trusting in God that whatever may come, he will have an opportunity to serve and that the Lord will be for him and with him. These things are true. They're true for you even today. That no matter where you 
go, the Lord is with you. And the Lord will provide for you. He will protect you. Now, it may not work the way you want it to. God's provision may not look like a nice home with a pantry full of food. But he does provide. And God's protection may not look like a nice and comfy lifestyle. We'll get this at the end of the gospel text again. The idea that no one can snatch you from the Father's hand is an important, important theme. God will provide. He will protect. He will bring you to himself in paradise where you will have far better than anything in this world. Paul knows that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he'll very specifically get into that idea as being why he doesn't mind going on and enduring all this stuff and continuing to preach even though these terrible things are done to him. Because if they kill him, God will raise him. And that gives him hope, it gives him confidence, it gives him the drive, the motivation to go out and share the good news. He wants other people to share in that wonderful gift that God gives. So the Spirit is going to take him there, and the Spirit has already attested to him, testified, in every city that bad things await. Imprisonment, affliction, wherever Paul goes, he knows it's not going to be pretty. Christianity in the ancient Roman Empire at this point in history is illegal. So you've got that pressure, where the Christian is supposed to worship Caesar or be cast into prison or killed, And then the Jewish people are watching their own faith get turned upside down on them. And so those who are more zealous, like Paul used to be, are persecuting the Christian any way they can, hoping that they can snuff out this Jesus person in order to just calm things down and return Judaism to what it was before. But it gets away from them, just like it gets away from the Roman Empire. They couldn't stop it. So Paul is going to have that affliction, and specifically when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to get arrested, and he's going to be brought on trial, and that's ultimately going to lead to him going to Rome, where he wanted to bring the gospel to Caesar himself. He doesn't quite get there, not this time around anyway. So Paul then notes that, verse 24, he does not count his own life as any value. He doesn't want to hold on to it. And this is Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This life, this world, if I die, okay. If I die, great. If I get to wake up tomorrow morning, I get to share the gospel. If I don't get to wake up tomorrow morning, I'm with Jesus. Which is better by far. In that same section, he goes on to say that he knows that they need to keep hearing the gospel from him, so he knows he'll remain for at least a little while longer which, by the timing of that letter, he certainly did. Now, he only wants to finish his course, to finish the ministry that Jesus has given to him. And Paul has this idea in his mind that he must preach the gospel throughout the entire kingdom. You can pick that up at the end of Romans chapter 15, verses, oh, probably 18 through 24. We learn that he, he has shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in every region in that greater area as we think of his missionary journeys from, from Jerusalem up north to Antioch, then across the top of the Mediterranean Sea as you go throughout the region we call Asia, and then over into Macedonia and Greece, even some of the islands that are on the Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul, at that point in, at the end of Romans, is declaring to the Roman church, that he finally wants to get out there and see them, but also that he plans to go to Spain because there are people there that have not yet heard the good news, that he himself has not had the chance to speak it to. So Paul wants to finish his course. He wants to remain in the faith as he shares Christ with as many as possible, testifying to the gospel, the good news. That's what that word gospel means of the grace of God, so the gifts of God that he gives to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ, forgiveness, life, and salvation. Verse 25, 
Now he turns the conversation a little bit more towards these pastors. Now behold, I know none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So he speaks to them almost like a, a departing parent that he is he's going to die. They're not going to see him again. He's not coming to Ephesus any longer. And so he's giving them this testimony. He's giving them this last message to encourage them, to urge them onward in their proclamation of the gospel and their caring for the saints that have been put before them, entrusted to them by the Lord. And that's going to start in verse 26 with his declaration of self-innocence. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all. This is Ezekiel-like. If you recall Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 9, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his wicked way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul has shared the gospel all throughout that region. He has spoken God's word to those people. So the Lord cannot hold that blood of those wicked people throughout Asia. He cannot hold that to Paul because Paul did Ezekiel 33. He did what he was supposed to do. He shared Christ with them. Now if they continue in their unbelief, that's on them. But Paul is innocent in the matter. So again, he's seeking new people to go and share the gospel with eventually. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's typical manner of missionary work was to go into a city, go to the synagogue, and go there because they had the scripture, they had the Old Testament. Preach to them from the Old Testament how Jesus is the Christ, that they would see through scripture the good news. But if you've ever walked your way through the Old Testament, it's not all pretty. There's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of really uh, difficult things sections to deal with. And so Paul has not hidden from those things. He has shared the fullness of God's word, the good, the bad, the law, the gospel. He has worked through all things uh, for the people to hear their and see the faith lived out, kind of how the speech started. Verse 28, so now he really turns the attention to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That overseer word again, compared to the word elder in the opening verse, verse 17, the equivalent for us today of pastors. We may not know exactly the unique roles that these words might have had in the first century congregations, but that's our connection point. These are essentially the pastors of the church, and the Holy Spirit has placed them in that role. We still function that way today, uh, that ordination is a gift that the Lord gives to his church. He calls people into the office of holy ministry to be pastors, to serve. He calls men into this task. And then those men go out to congregations throughout our synod to administer word and sacrament, to make sure that you always have the opportunity to hear God's word clearly preached and taught, and that the sacraments, the forgiveness of sins through baptism and the Lord's Supper, and even the absolution are always present with you in your congregation. It is a place of promise. You know where to go when the devil is messing with your head, where he's messing with your soul and trying to convince you of your guilt before God. Your pastor can speak directly to that, the words of Christ, that your sins have been forgiven. So he's encouraging the pastors here that they would guard themselves as well as the flock. If the pastor does not care for himself, the door is open for the devil to attack him. I'm not saying focus on the self like all the self-esteem sort of things that 21st century America does, but if the pastor is not engaged in God's word, if the pastor is not engaged in prayer, And if the pastor is not engaged in serving those sorts of things, it is easy for the pastor to start to think pridefully that he can do this himself, 
um, that he doesn't need support, whatever it might be, and those things end up opening the door for the devil to attack in various ways. And if a pastor falls, many more people are harmed because the pastor was over them. Just like when Adam and Eve broke God's commandment in the garden to not sin by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it didn't just break Adam and Eve, it also impacted the entire creation that had been entrusted to them. So if you are a member of a church, which this is the layman's guide to the lectionary, so I assume you are a member of a church, your pastor, you have been entrusted into his care. And so if, if the devil gets your pastor to snap, if the devil gets your pastor to break or to give up his faith, it's not to say your faith is immediately going to be crushed, and your faith may not be crushed at all, but the devil uses that moment to bring despair and harm to you and to the other members of your congregation as well. So Paul is encouraging them not to, not to let that happen, either to themselves or to their congregation. Watch yourself. Watch your flock. Care for the church. Why? He obtained it with his own blood. This is why the words of the absolution speak about for the sake of Christ. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you of all your sins. Christ has already done the work. Christ has already forgiven you. He's already given you new life. And so the pastor is going to care for you. He's going to care for the whole of the church that you're a part of because Jesus bought that church. He bought you with his own blood. You matter to God that much, and now your pastor is the man that God has put in that place, in that position, to help care for you. Like he entrusts a child to a parent. The parent gets the care for that kid. Takes the responsibility of loving them, providing for them. In the same way, a pastor is a spiritual father. He doesn't put a roof over your head, but he does shelter you with God's word. He feeds you with the things of God. Then Paul identifies that there will be false teachers who sneak in to destroy, and they'll come from both outside, so wolves, picture of God's people as sheep, wolves eat sheep. They'll come in to destroy, but they'll also come from among you, from among your own selves. And on my notes sheet here, I wrote, ouch, even pastors will be corrupted by the devil. Even pastors will be corrupted by our own sinful natures and will start teaching the things that we would rather teach rather than what God teaches and that can have that slow and subtle effect of eroding away faith, again, in the pastor, but also in those who follow him as they become the blind leading the blind and they both fall into a pit together. So this is the warning that this would not happen among them. So be alert, verse 31. Three years, Paul notes, that he spent among them, not ceasing night or day, to admonish everyone and to do so with tears. So with deep emotion, deep heart, compassion, commitment, however you want to phrase that, and also the difficulties and trials we talked about before. Three years with them. Paul's missionary journeys lasted a long time. He wants to share that word of God. He did share that word of God. And now, verse 32, he entrusts them to share that word of God with others. So he commends them to God. So may God, may God hold them, again, John chapter 10, in his hand. May God grant them the ability to share his word faithfully. And what does that word do? That word is powerful. The word of God builds up and it gives us the inheritance among the sanctified because it sanctifies us. So it builds us up, sanctifies us, and gives us paradise, gives us life with Christ forevermore. These are good things, good gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us through the word. The word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God does not go out and return empty but always does the thing for which Yahweh purposed it. Verse 33, Paul then reminds them that he did not covet money or stuff, but instead, the second time he says, you yourselves know, he reminds them of how he lived among them. And in this case, it was working with his own hands. Paul was a tent maker. And 
he made tents to be able to make a living in that way, it didn't put the burden on the congregation. They were able to hear the word of God freely. There are other spots where even Paul will write that a worker is worthy of his wages and that you should pay your pastor. But where it came to Paul, Paul did his missionary work for nothing. He trusted in the Lord to provide, and the Lord did. So Paul shows in all things, by hard work, how to love the weak. Romans 14 will have a conversation around that. 1 Corinthians 1 will have a conversation around that. And also how to remember the words of Jesus, who himself has said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, there's actually no direct citation of that in any of the gospel accounts. So did Jesus say it? Uh, Yes, he said it. Paul's attributing it to him here. This is the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So Jesus has said this. Maybe he said it to Paul on the road to Damascus in the conversion account. Maybe this is one of those things that in John chapter 20 and 21, John tells us he couldn't write down everything. But maybe it was one of the things more commonly known that just people knew Jesus had said. I don't have an answer for you on that one, other than it is true to his teaching in the sense of man interacting with man. When it comes to God and man, we cannot give. We have nothing to give. We can only receive. And in that case, it is much better to receive because we receive faith, forgiveness, life, and salvation from our Lord. He gives those things to us. And in that picture, it is the generosity of God that makes it true of what we read in this final verse, that it is more blessed to give than to receive for us working with another. That for me to give to you or for you to give to your child or your neighbor or your spouse is better than receiving. To be generous like our God is generous with all things. That was about half of our time together today, and in fairness, it was about half of our text as well. As we're going to move forward with the epistle now, it's Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Now, Revelation 7 is used in the church every year on All Saints Day. We will read together from this section the same verses, although it's optionally longer by adding verses 2 through 8 onto it. Um, And I know in our congregation this past year, we did read that extra section as well. Uh, So this is a familiar text, but I'm going to share it with you again. It has been, it's been a while since I recorded on this one. And even since then, I've done a Bible study with my congregation on the book of Revelation. So maybe I can share some things with you that you're, you're not familiar with, or you can just reflect if you've listened to that old episode in the past. So, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. The context that you want to know for this as we we jump in. The structure of Revelation. Chapter 1, it is revealed that Jesus is giving this revelation to John, and John is to reveal it to the churches. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives a direct message to the congregations, the seven churches that the letter is supposed to go to. Chapter 4, we see then the message really that's going out what's going to be said, and that's actually chapter 4 through 22, all of it. It starts in chapter 4 with creation, praising God for the good gift of creation, and then it goes into chapter 5 with creation, praising God for the the good gift of salvation. Then chapter 6 is going to give us the seven seals. There are three sections of seven. Chapter 6 has the seven seals, Chapter 8 and 9 have the seven trumpets, and then finally chapter 15 and 16 will get into the seven bowls. 15 is more of an introduction. 16 has all the bowls contained within the one chapter. These are repetition, three cycles of the same thing. And so we're in the midst of the seven seals, which is the suffering that's going to come upon creation as Jesus works through the midst of such suffering even to save and rescue us. The sixth of the The seven seals is the end of the world. And chapter 6 ends with that. And it ends with the question, who can stand? So you think of the great and final day when Jesus returns. And as 2 Peter chapter 3 puts it, that the heaven and the earth pass away, uh, melting and fire, however you want to phrase it, whatever exactly that day is going to look like. 
who can stand before the might of God? Chapter 7 gives the answer to that question. That's why I wanted to backtrack a little bit with this text. Chapter 7 answers the question, who can stand on the last day? And the answer is the church. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It starts out with the idea that uh, the angel proclaiming no one can harm the creation. Again, last day idea here. No one can harm the creation until all of the saints, all of the 144,000 have been sealed with the name of Christ, with the name of the Lord. Now, that 144,000 number gets refuted here. Uh, a lot of times people mistake that and think it's a literal number. The Jehovah's Witnesses are built around that. The Christian will sometimes see the number and struggle with it and say, is it really that small? Is that all that are going to be in paradise? Verse 9 refutes that. That's what I meant by saying that. It's not 144, 144,000, just like so much of the book of Revelation is symbolic. To get 144,000, you have to multiply 12, which is the number for the church, times 12. So you think of the Old Testament church, the 12 tribes of Israel. You think of the New Testament church, the 12 apostles. So 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. And 10 is the number in the book for completion. So the completeness of the completeness of the completeness of God's people. Old Testament and New Testament both. So 144,000. Why is it not literally 144,000? Verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Greater censuses than 144,000 have been taken on this earth. Many times. I mean, even the United States government does a census every 10 years. And it's much larger than 144,000. So, again, this is about those who would be sealed with the mark of Christ. And we do this in baptism, right? The, the pastor will make the sign of the cross both on the forehead and upon the heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Sealed. By our Lord. Again, John chapter 10, held in the palm of his hand, nothing can snatch you from it. Sealed. So that's what we're getting into in this text. No one could number this great multitude, and they come from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Notice there's four of those things. The number four is the number for creation in the book of Revelation. And so this, is a, this phrase is actually common. Nation, tribe, people, language shows up a few times in the book. But it's the idea that the saints come from everywhere. Unlike the, the Old Testament, the Old Testament being restricted largely to just the, the people of Israel or the Jews as they would later become called closer to the intertestamental period of time, the gospel is for all. And you see foreshadowing, you see moments of that, glimpses of that in the Old Testament. Like when Naaman, who's not of Israel, but a, a chief military commander of a foreign army, Naaman gets healed by the prophet Elisha. God shares his gifts with his creation. He created all of us. And so he seeks to save all of us as he did by his blood on the cross. Now he sees them, John sees them standing before the throne, before the Lamb. So the throne in the book of Revelation typically represents the Father. The Lamb is the Son. So he's, he sees everyone standing before Father and Son. They're dressed in white robes. Now, I don't know if that one's symbolic or not. I mean, there's a symbolic picture to it. I mean, literally, will we wear white robes in paradise is what I don't know. The picture here, though, you see it starting in chapter 
Well, actually, even Jesus dressed sort of like this in chapter 1. But chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 18 talk about the the faithful receiving a white garment. Chapter 4, verse 4 mentions the same thing. Chapter 6, verse 11, the martyrs who cried out from under the throne are dressed in white robes. And now here in chapter 7, the picture of the white robe again. And that one's going to get unpacked for us down in verses 13 and 14. So we'll hold off on that a little bit longer. Then you have the palm branches. Remind you of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the people grab palm branches and they wave them like they were fanning a king. So they are before the throne. It is a posture of worship. It's a posture of respect. It's a posture of victory and celebration, too. And they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, a father-son sort of picture going on here. It belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God because he won it for us with his own blood, the blood of the lamb shed for us upon the cross. And so we're calling out. The entire church gathered together is calling out to God, proclaiming him, praising him for his salvation for us. And then verse 11, the angels who are standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures So the elders of the church, 24 elders, 12 Old Testament tribes, 12 New Testament apostles, the four living creatures, high-ranking angels perhaps, hard to say. That's one of the trickier symbols in the book. And they fell on their faces. So the angels now worshiping God as well. And they attribute to God seven things, a sevenfold blessing here at the end of the paragraph in verse 12, which is very much so like the list near the end of chapter 5 that we had even just last week. And in this list, you get seven things, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. One of them, thanksgiving, is new from chapter 5's list. We drop wealth. All things belong to God. And we add thanksgiving. We give thanks to God for all things. Uh, So those two do go together pretty well. Blessing is, again, thanksgiving. When we, as the inferior, bless God as the superior, we're thanking him for his gifts. Glory that he has lifted up for all to see. Wisdom. His wisdom is what has, in a sense, saved us, that Jesus is the wisdom of God for us. Honor that we would look to him, respect him as our king, our Lord. Power and might are distinct from each other, as I mentioned last week. Power is the ability to do something, whereas might is just what we think of as strength. I think we often probably think of power as strength, but it's ability. I can do this. Now the two go together sometimes, right? I can open the jar that somebody else couldn't open because I have the strength to open the jar. So there's overlap, but they're not always the same thing. Amen is joining into the prayer. Um, When you pray and you say amen, you're saying this is true. But if you pray with someone else and they close with amen or they prayed and you close with amen, you are joining yourself to that prayer. So the angels are declaring this is true. And the church, which has already said salvation belongs to our God, the angels are saying amen to that as well. Then we come to verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the elder, one of them, one of the 24, which is again one of the 12 tribes, or one of the 12 apostles, and one of these leaders of the church ask John what he's looking at. What do you see? Who are all these people? Where do they come from? John has a fantastic answer here. It is an answer of humility. Rather than claim to be the one who knows, John simply says, you know. He looks to the elder to teach him, which is a good posture to have. And so the elder shares with him, These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now, there are many who try to figure out the Great Tribulation as some specific moment in history, some period of time of intense suffering or persecution. The timeline of the book of Revelation does not work that way, however. It is a series of repetition, and it covers the time from Christ's ascension until Christ's second coming. That's the Great Tribulation. You're in it. 
right now. Right here, wherever you are, if you're listening to this podcast, you are in the Great Tribulation. Let that sink in for a moment. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. No laundry soap can do that. Take our sin-filled, sin-stained, bloodied garments from our violence and our, our hate and wash them white again. The blood of Jesus does that. He is the one who redeems us, which again, we saw that back in chapter, well, in verse 10 before. This is the meaning of the white robe. It is the picture that our our sins have been washed away. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the picture. We have been given the, the wedding garment, if you want to use the language from one of Jesus' parables in the gospel accounts, and it's been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Then, verses 15 through 17, to wrap up this text, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We don't know what paradise is going to look like. We don't. It's a promise God has made to us. It's a promise he has given. And because he has promised it and he is faithful, we know he will keep that promise. That Jesus is preparing this place for us and that he will bring us to be with him there. That happens in, uh, it's spoken by Jesus at the start of John chapter 14 to his disciples. New heaven, new earth language, Revelation chapter 21. But what will it look like? We don't know what perfect looks like. We have never known it. All we know is a broken and sinful world. So even our attempts to envision perfection fall short because we know nothing different. And so oftentimes the book of Revelation will picture paradise for us by telling us what's not there, and we get some of those things here. There's no hunger. There's no thirst because we're so well provided for at the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. There is no sun beating down on us, scorching us with its heat. You think of the, the heat of the summer months that has no respite. It just keeps coming. The, the hard labor of working out in the field all day under the sun. Most people throughout history have, have known this pain. Now, we live in a land of luxury and houses and giant skyscraping buildings and air conditioners. I don't think paradise is going to look like that. I would be quite surprised if skyscrapers are in paradise, but the Lord will do what the Lord wants to do. Instead, then, we do have some things that will be in paradise. The throne of God, which will shelter us, with his presence, and that is the picture, again, contrast to the scorching heat of the sun, but also a contrast to enemies and afflictions, suffering, like what Paul has suffered that we talked about in the book of Acts today. The Lamb will be there, our shepherd, which connects forward to the gospel reading here in a minute. and He's going to guide us, like a shepherd guides his sheep, to living water, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Those That language there, the wiping away of the tears, will appear again at the end of the book in chapter 21, verse 4. So God is with us. God is for us. He will provide. He will care, not just temporarily, but every day for the rest of forever. And that connects back to verse 15, that we are before his throne, as John has already seen, and we serve him day and night in his temple. Now that is a, that's a call to repent for us here and now. If you don't want to be in God's house now, why would you want to spend all of your time in God's house later? And again, I'm using that as a call to repentance even for myself, to know that what the Lord gives is good. 
and that I should seek after such good things rather than whatever it is that my sinful nature wants to spend so much time on. So we are going to serve him day and night, nonstop. Paul worked night and day for the sake of the gospel in the Acts 20 reading. This brings us to our gospel text, which is a short one. It's just one paragraph long. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. Again, many congregations will call this Good Shepherd Sunday, and it is connected to the gospel reading from John chapter 10, although we don't always read the same text on this particular Sunday. There are a few Sundays throughout the church here that we do that. We will, For All Saints Day, for example, we read the same Old Testament epistle and gospel readings each year, rather than having the year A, B, and C differences. There is an A, B, C difference for John chapter 10, although fourth Sunday of Easter each year we are in John chapter 10. In year A, we read from verses 1 through 10. Year B, we read verses 11 through 18. And now in year C, we read verses 22 through 30. So the Good Shepherd title can be rightly given if you would like to use it. Uh, I joke around that in year A, we should really call it Door Sunday, D-O-O-R, because we call it Good Shepherd Sunday because Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. Well, in verses 1 through 10, he doesn't say that. He says, I am the door. And so I've joked around about that a few times. In verses 22 to 30 today, we don't get one of those I am statements that Jesus so clearly makes in the Gospel of John. That's not to say we don't have some strong stuff to discuss. So let's go ahead and read the text. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This text starts with the Feast of Dedication. That is a reference to something that is said nowhere else in Scripture. The Feast of Dedication is the Festival of Lights, or the festival that we know of today primarily as Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from 164 B.C. as they rededicated the temple after King Antiochus IV Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire desecrated the temple of God. So, Hanukkah is a, it's a Jewish holiday celebrated by the Jews, although there doesn't seem to be really any disconnect for the Christian with that particular holiday. It seems like it is something that if we wanted to celebrate, we could, but we don't celebrate the earthly temple anymore and it's a temple dedication celebration, so there's not really a reason to celebrate it for us, if that makes sense. So it's that time, which places it in winter, specifically December, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Acts chapter 3 and 5, the same colonnade is referred to as Solomon's portico. It's a covered porch. So it's a spot that you can take shelter from from rain if it were raining, that sort of a thing. Josephus, the Jewish historian, late 1st century, early 2nd century, Josephus suggested that it's called Solomon's Portico or Colonnade because it's the only part of the original temple that was built by King Solomon that is still standing at the time of Jesus in, in the text here. I don't know if there's any truth to that or not, but I thought that was interesting enough that I would give that a share. It's a common spot for people to gather and for for various priests and teachers to teach the people of God because it's outside of the temple itself. There's limitations on who can go where within the temple compound. So the temple itself, the actual building, 
is limited to the priesthood. And then there's courtyards outside of it. The immediate courtyard around it is going to be a courtyard where the Jewish men can enter. And then after that, there's a courtyard for the women. And then after that, as you keep moving outward from the temple, you have what's called the Gentiles court or the court of the Gentiles. And that's then for anyone to enter into. And that court is where you would find, to the east of the temple, Solomon's colonnade or portico. So they can teach out there because even the Gentiles can come and listen to the instruction, men, women, children alike. So there, the Jews surround Jesus. And I think his, their question here in verse 24 is, it seems innocent, it seems soft, but when you look at the context, it's not. So you start verse 24, if, if you were walking along and suddenly a crowd of people surrounded you, like with you in the middle and they're all looking at you, you wouldn't take that as an innocent moment or a time where they just want to talk. And after Jesus is done saying what he says in verse 30, in verse 31 we read, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is not an honest approach, an honest question for Jesus. So they, they surround him and they ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Not in parables, not in I am language, just say it. Flat out, straightforward, I am the Christ. That's what they want to hear. But they don't want to hear it for the right reason. Again, they're trying to harm him. And Jesus knows this. But he points out what is true nonetheless. I told you. He's already told them that he is the Christ. And they did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So everything that they have seen Jesus do and that they would eventually see him do as we think of the cross and the resurrection, all of this was pointing to the fact that he is from the Father. And he says this elsewhere. I mean, as he's been healing the sick, as he's been casting out demons, as he's been speaking good news to the poor, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they come and ask Jesus about it, and he points them back to a prophecy about doing those same things. His miracles show that he has authority over creation. Who can stop a storm? Even today, we don't have technology that can stop a storm. We have news broadcasts that can tell us when the storm will come, and they do a decent job of trying to predict the future, when you think about it in fairness. And so we can take shelter from a storm, but we can't stop it. And Jesus just looked at the storm and said, be still. And it stopped because he's God and he has that authority. Now, this is his point to them, but they're not among his sheep. They're not his people. They're Jews. That should not be the case. This is, this is not good. The Jews are the ones that the Old Testament was for. They are the Old Testament people of God, and yet Jesus looks at them and says, you are not among my sheep. This is Romans 9, where we learn that it is not by descent, physical descent from the genealogy of Abraham. That's not how you become a child of God. Abraham's offspring are offspring by the promise. Isaac was a son of the promise that God had given to Abraham. And so if you trust in the promise, you are a son of Abraham. You don't have to be Jewish by descent. Nor does the Jew, for that matter. The gospel is open to Jew and Gentile alike. These people, Jew or Gentile, though they are specifically Jews here in the text, because they do not trust in Christ, they are not his people. This is Mark 3, as Jesus talks to his even his family, his mother and his brothers, and the crowd tells him that they're seeking after him. His mother and his brothers are looking for him. Jesus looks around and says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Anyone who does the will of the Father. Different, different outlook than what we think about in the world today. My sheep hear my voice. So that again gets to the good shepherd idea of this being good shepherd Sunday, although that, that phrase shows up in the text just before. They follow me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I follow him. 
I go where he shows me to go. I go to his word, I go to his church, I go to his, his sacraments, I go to, I go to his love, I go to his care, his provision. We follow him. We hear his word. We ignore the word of the world around us. And that's one that we struggle with quite a bit. We would rather listen to the news than listen to God's word. And that, again, is a call to repent. I give, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We often focus on verse 29 first. Let's double back on it. 28. Jesus gives us eternal life. We get to live forever. We will not perish. How great good news is that? In his paradise, which we started talking about in Revelation 7, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The hand is the thing of action. If you needed to grab a pen to write something down, you would use your hand. If you needed to open a door to help your neighbor, or open that jar I mentioned earlier, you'd use your hand. It's a thing of action. And so God's hand is a thing of action, and he, with his actions, holds you in it. Nothing can take you from that. Nothing can conquer the action of Christ, because Christ, in his action, has acted for you already. What did he do with that hand? He was crucified. A nail pierced through his hand. And because he has been pierced through Because his blood has been shed, your sins have been forgiven. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can take that forgiveness away from you. It is a free gift that he gives, and so he holds on. His actions have defeated sin, death, and the devil, and he's done it for you and for me. Thanks be to God. Then verse 29, my father who has given them to me. So God the father entrusted his creation to his son. My father is greater than all. So this is the challenge, right? The idea of anything taking them from the father. Can anyone snatch them out of the father's hand? Well, if you're going to snatch them, you got to be better than him. You have to be greater than him. If the devil wants to snatch you from the father's hand, he's got to fight God first. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand because he is greater than all. Then Jesus gets in trouble. If he hadn't already, we don't know. But then he gets in trouble, verse 30. I and the Father are one. A lot of atheists today try to attack Christianity and say that Christians didn't believe Jesus was God until like the 4th century or something like that. It's just a made-up religion. And that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Uh, There are several spots where we could easily point out Jesus claimed to be God. This is one of them. Because he says this and then they try and kill him because he said it. And it plays out over the next few verses. I mean, verse 33, they say they're not stoning him for a good work, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. He doesn't deny it because that's what he said. It's what he meant. We also have external sources like the letter from Pliny the Younger to the Roman Emperor that declares that the Christians gathered together before it was even sunlight yet, uh, and they sang hymns to, a, to Jesus as though to a god. In the first century, you know, we have these things. It, it's just most atheist attack on the Christian faith have, have no grounding to them whatsoever, but because we're not and this is back to the Acts reading, because we're not grounded in our faith, because we don't have that intentionality and that focus, and we're not alert and watchful for such attacks, we're not ready for them, and they catch us by surprise and they harm us. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, but you can leave it. It's not a closed fist. God has not, like, suffocatingly kept you in. He will defend you from all danger and from all harm. But you can walk away. You can reject him. It's marriage language again. Uh, Husband and wife. Jesus is the husband. The church is his bride. Old Testament, the father is the husband. Israel is the bride. In marriage, you become one flesh. Nothing can destroy that, right? Jesus says that in, 
in the Gospels that what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But 1 Corinthians 7, if your unbelieving spouse walks away, let them. And we can leave the Father's hand. Nothing can take us out of it because he is stronger than all. But we can choose to reject that free gift. So after Jesus has said this, after this conversation, after the picking up stones to stone him, they then try and arrest him too, but they're unable to, and he gets away. Good Shepherd Sunday. Jesus is our Good Shepherd. He holds us in his hand because it is by his hand that he has shed the blood that forgives our sins. And he is one with his Father who has sent him to do this very thing, to save us all. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.